interrupt your deep samadhi, your profound inner seeing. Um, what would be a good idea now is to now uh, more and more to incline the mind towards where we are going, which is home. And uh, just a few hints about practice in daily life. And then if there are some questions on your mind, we can begin to talk that over. Um, trying to bring together a bunch of notes, too, that Is it helpful or necessary to have a daily practice? Daily, uh, of course. Uh, if you ask a dentist, uh, is it necessary to floss your teeth? Uh, am I going to say no? Don't have a daily practice. Uh, but it also turns out to be true, objectively true. <laughs> um, here you have to be careful because people will often talk about how busy they are and they don't have time to practice. They've gotten fixated on the sitting part of the practice. And it's very hard not to when you've done a retreat like this because we do so much of it. We've fixated on formal practice, sitting and walking and retreats and so forth. And as uh, I hope you have found it valuable, uh, if you do, you know they're very, very precious you know, to find the time away from our busy lives to be able to do it, and then the kinds of things you can accomplish here are not so easy to accomplish in the midst of, our, of life, the daily life that we have back home. But um, practice is uh, prior to sitting or walking, that is, it's about our whole life. And if you can get that straight, that uh, Dharma practice is about the way we live, and sitting and walking are very extraordinarily helpful aspects of that and not come to emotionally think that sitting is the practice. Uh, you know, we, we, it's hard not to. But I think little by little you'll realize that if you don't learn what I'm about, to, what I've been saying, your practice will be very, very limited because most of your life is not going to be spent on the cushion. That may not seem true now, but uh, in a little while, you know, you'll get straightened out. <laughs> Um, so is there life after the cushion? <laughs> I think there is, uh, and lots of it. Um, so having a daily sitting practice, uh, I certainly would encourage you to, to do that. How long? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, some uh, methods say 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the... I don't know where that number comes from. Uh, for one person, 20 minutes is an eternity. And for another person, you're just getting warmed up for 20 minutes. Uh, one person's life is so busy that if they can get 20 minutes, it's a miracle. And someone else really has more leisure time. So uh, what I would suggest as a general guideline is working within the limits of how much time you have. I don't, I don't know that. Uh, go a bit beyond what you think your capacity is. So if, let's say if t it's easier to do it when, it when we're held together in a, in a sangha as this. When you go home and sit by yourself, you may find that it isn't as uh, easy to sit for extended periods of time. At least many people have found that. Um, if you feel that if 20 minutes is your limit, then go to 25. I mean, you need to challenge yourself a little bit. That's how you grow. But don't overdo it because then it can become oppressive and the practice becomes uh, like cod liver oil. You know, you have to... Uh, take it every morning and uh, it isn't it's it's much more joyful and uh, and it's not if it becomes mechanical take a look at that uh, think of it this way that setting aside a bit of time each day to sit quietly with yourself now I don't know if you uh, see that right now but I if you keep practicing I think you will it's not a luxury item it's, it's not like a hobby you know, a little thing you do. I don't think so. Uh, for a human being to sit quietly with themselves for however long you can is uh, necessary. It's a very important thing to do. Uh, but you have to decide for yourself. To begin with, and there's tremendous variation here, uh, you'll try to squeeze the sitting in around your schedule. That's typically how it starts. And you already have a life. 
And then you'll see, well, I could get some sitting a bit here in the morning, uh, shower, and then before breakfast, and, and maybe a bit in the evening. But as this goes on, if it's as valuable as we've been maintaining it is, and the Buddha says it is, and if you really find out for yourself that it is, you'll start rearranging your life to protect the sitting. It, it goes the other way around, because you realize how important it is. And you start more and more to live from that clarity that comes from practice, rather than getting lost in life and just having some little remedial thing you do from time to time to de-stress yourself. It's more than that, or it can be. Um, I would say attitude is really important, and I just want to briefly uh, bring this home as best I can and then see what's on your mind. We've already been preparing you to go home the, the first day that you came here by uh, encouraging you to keep your mindfulness alive on your yogi job, uh, dressing, undressing, taking care of your room, uh, washing, uh, whatever it is you do. I think you know we've been encouraging you, and I know, and I know some of that shows. Uh, and in other words, it's a, practice is, is, is seamless. It's like a seamless kind of thing. So um, now, there's really nothing d that different. Uh, it's just that instead of sitting and walking or whatever it is we've been doing here, it's going to be exhaling IMS in a while and inhaling whatever is next. Cambridge or the airport or the road, I don't know what's next. And so one guideline, it's very simple-minded, but it's extraordinarily helpful, at least it has been for me. The image of the breath is a good one. Uh, it's a kind of an image of life in general. That is, uh, a healthy body fully exhales. In other words, what you're exhaling is what's over with. Toxins, you don't need it. Uh, and that makes room for what, so you can receive what's next, nourishment. And so when situations are over, can you fully exhale them uh, so that you are, can be uh, present and have the capacity to fully receive what's next? If you're going home and, let's say, people are waiting for you, you know, husbands, wives, partners, children, and you're completely lost in IMS, what a drag for them. You know, they have to put up with you. You know, like, oh, and then they were so kind there and they were so... Yeah. <laughs> Just great vegetarian food, and <laughs> it's over, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, file it away with, you know, Christopher Columbus, the dinosaurs, you know, it's ancient history. Now what's next is talking to your children, or uh, whatever it is you, you're going to. And what I'm trying to say is it keeps being like that. So when you come into the hall, if you come into the hall to sit, 100% undivided attention to this, because this is, this is what correct action would be in a meditation hall. And so when anything interferes with that, it's not complicated. You know that that's off, and you come back. Uh, if it's time to do the laundry at home, do the laundry 100%, etc. So you move from situation to situation, uh, letting go, and in the process of letting go, being receptive to what's next. It has to be learned, because typically what happens is we're still in X while we're, we're in Y. Our body is in B, but we're still in A. We haven't gotten there yet. And maybe the laundry gets done, but, you know, mechanically, and we're uh, asleep or preoccupied. Uh, in the midst of that, included in that, in other words, uh, taking it one situation at a time, one person at a time, and keeping the breath in mind to help you stay awake throughout the day, not, not uninterruptedly, that would be unrealistic, I don't think. It's not about setting the world record, Olympic record, for being with the breath. The breath is useful, if it is, to help you be mindful of your life, in other words, to live consciously. That's what it's about. And the breath is one very, very helpful method for that. So don't get distracted by giving too much attention to the breathing. Um, What's also necessary, and we don't have a, a much time for this now, here your ethical life is so controlled that it's pretty hard to do anything that's off. I mean, what's the worst thing? Maybe it says take only one cookie and you take two. Uh, you know, it says you break a precept, but, you know. But now you're going to go home, and it's a little different. There are lots of things that can be broken, you know, lots of precepts. 
and ways of living that cause suffering for ourselves and others. So one ongoing consideration is mindfulness, in a sense, is our best friend because you're paying attention to how you're to thought, speech, and action. And more and more, getting to see which thought, speech, and action uh, leads to human suffering for yourself and others and which doesn't. And that's called wisdom. And little by little, you start guiding your life in a way that uh, creates harmony and peace for you and the people in your life. And you start letting go of uh, those patterns that are destructive. That, and often we've been doing them for years, but now it'll be harder for you to avoid that if you do this practice. Because you're going to see how you're living. And it's not like you need some, uh, someone, uh, someone giving you a sermon to be a good girl or a good boy. Uh, if you do things that are destructive, you just feel them. It's like hearing a false note if you, know, if you love music. And more and more you know it, and then there's the incentive to uh, use awareness, use the practice to live your understanding. Often we understand things, and then we can't follow through and live what our understanding is. We betray ourselves. But even that is practice. You begin to see, why don't I live on my own best behalf? And you find out maybe there's fear or this or that. So. Uh, that's an ongoing thing. Two related things, and then we'll open it up. One is, there was one note, a few notes on posture. Um, a number of you were saying that, you know, for years you've been slouching or you have some, uh, some uh, problem with your body and that you can't sit straight. Uh, what should you do? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, first of all, I can't come around and keep straightening you out, you know. I couldn't even do it here. I mean, it would just be too disruptive. Uh, you do the best you can. You kind of bring your body in the most stable, into the most stable and comfortable position possible for you. And you have to trust yourself from inside. It's not a stiff holding it like uh, trying to look like a picture postcard yogi. It's, it's more that when you're as erect as possible and stable, the breathing flows more freely, you're less likely to get sleepy, and so forth. There's a reason for why posture is important. Uh, if you feel that for years you've been off, there's so many remedial things around, at least you know, where I live, certainly, but maybe where you do too. Uh, the best I've discovered is yoga, uh, the original yoga. Now it's become leotard yoga, but I mean, you know, the, ori <laughs> the original yoga uh, was a very integral part of meditation. Uh, and it wasn't just to have firm abs and a small butt and things like that. Uh, it was, and one of the main things that comes out of yoga is uh, healthy breathing and a healthy spine. So if there's some good yoga teaching where you live, you'll see the difference. If you're drawn to Anapanasati, I've seen this, uh, and you do yoga, the breath will become much more vivid for you and then it'll be uh, much easier to follow these instructions. There are many other things too, massage, occupation. You know, you know them as well as I do. Um, so if you, if you look for some help if you want to change it. But finally, none of us are perfect, you know, and the human body is the way it is, and uh, don't make that into a problem. You know, just as best you can, straighten up and so forth. Last thing, a number of you were confused by the sense of, gee, all you, you know, you, uh, you and Michael keep talking about be in the moment, this moment, here and now, allowing, surrender to this moment. It sounds very fatalistic and passive, uh, but life requires action sometimes and doing, and uh, what, is, what about that? Um, it isn't. It isn't suggesting uh, that you become a patsy, you know, and just everyone rolls over you. Uh, okay, l let's say we're in this hall right now, and let's say we're meditating and the instructions are be in the moment, be intimate with this breath, this bodily experience, and so forth. And suddenly you start experiencing it getting warmer and warmer. In fact, then you start sweating. And you look up and you see flames all over the place. Hot, hot, feeling very, very hot. Yeah. <laughs> No, this, the, the real super-duper meditators would be the first ones out of here. <laughs> the reasons they'd be the first ones out of here is they're really in touch with their experience. So uh, being in touch with your experience enables your actions to come from a real place that's uh, aligned with what's happening, that's an accurate indicator of what's happening. 
so it's not to make you a kind of helpless just standing there while people take advantage of you and you just what smile and follow your breath uh, if you're in in touch with what's going on you have a much better chance of your response to life being adequate uh, rather than just mechanical reactions which is what we've uh, for the most part done any questions on your your side please Mm-hmm. 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 I do. There's a, a book put out by the um, Buddhist Publication Society. Does that mean anything to you? Okay. Called a, a, An Unentangled Knowing or a Disentangled Knowing. Does anyone? It's by Upasaka Ki. K-E-E. She was a Thai woman uh, meditation master. Extraordinary. I suggest all of you read it. There's one chapter on called A Good Dose of Dhamma for meditators when they're sick. Okay. Attitude is central. When we get sick, we think of, oh, this is interfering you know, uh, with my life, and now I've got four or five days or even longer when uh, I'm interrupted and I can't do the things I want, practice or every, everything. It's kind of just to get through it. Uh, the attitude, the Dharma attitude is, great, I'm sick, you know, far out. You know, now I can begin to see what's this about, but also you don't have any responsibilities. You know, everyone's taking care of you, have some more soup, you know, this kind of thing. Okay, uh, so you have four or five day little retreat in, in your bed uh, and you work with bodily sensations. It's not so different, but if you have the attitude that the, the very sick, what we're calling sick, is you're still alive and something's happening to you. You can feel the sensations in your body. Uh, you can experience the attitude, maybe self-pity or whatever. And so you can keep practicing. Now, if you don't have tremendous energy, it sounds like that's part of it, uh, then practice with the, whatever the energy is that you have. If you hold yourself to standards of, let's say, of when you're healthy and that you have much, of course, you have much more energy and you don't have it now and then you feel disappointed and then you just throw in the towel, just quit then that won't work. Actually, this happened to me when I was in Korea. I think this will, I hope, will help you. Um, I got very sick. We all did first oh, six weeks, dysentery. We couldn't hold the food. And our practice was a koan, which is uh, a question like, what am I? You would take up this question and ask it of yourself, eventually not in words, but just a deep pondering. What, and... I, I was just exhausted. I mean, I had, couldn't hold food, uh, had temperature sometimes. There were three of us, the three Americans, and we were just the water and the food just, it took us a while to get used to it. And finally, I mean, I just uh, was not doing much of any use there, and then I went and had an interview with my teacher, and he listened carefully, and my particular practice was, what am I? And he, he listened to me, and then he said, look, your practice is, when you're healthy, is, what am I? What am I? And he said, but now you're very sick. It's more like, what am I? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a Jewish joke, but anyway. <laughs> um, and it was helpful. In other words, you kind of settle in with where you are and you kind of work with what you have rather than some image of how you used to be or could be. Yeah. Please. Oh, yes. They're just taking. They're just taking turns. It's like a tennis match. Uh, one is meditation. One isn't. Sorry. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yes. Uh, do you get a sense of the difference between thinking and knowing that thinking is happening? Okay. Uh, we're all thinking. We didn't need to come here to learn how to do that. We're masters of it, right? Blah, 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 blah. It's always going on. Okay. But when there's a knowing of it, let's say a listening to it, a, 
and knowing that, think of it this way, you know, sometimes we use an image of a train of thought, you know, like a train going through with different, box, different cars, okay. Um, in, in this one, you don't get on the train. You know, you watch the thoughts coming. You, know, you don't watch them with your eyes. You know, you're, whatever image I use is going to be incomplete. You listen to it. You're attentive to it. Uh, and what happens is, when you're mindful, you're mindful that the process of thinking is going on. But you haven't gotten on the, you haven't jumped on the train, because then, then you're thinking again. So that, let's say, when you're mindful, it's like, uh, okay, a mirror, here, uh, this clock comes in front of it. It just reflects what's there. Right? The mirror's job, the mirror is empty. That's, what, that's its uh, beauty. It's just, it's just uh, clear. It has, it's not for or against anything. It shows you. It take it away, and it shows you. <laughs> okay? Then put it back. And when, th when this is gone, there's no trace on it, etc. Uh, but let's say this happens. This comes in front. And there's just the reflection, the seeing, mindful of the clock. And then the thought, wonderful, I was just mindful of that clock. Now, if you get lost in that thought, then you're just thinking. But if you hear the mind now congratulating itself on how I just did a moment of mindfulness, it's still mindful. No good. Okay, let's keep going. Let's try. Um, first of all, when you're really mindful of thoughts, I don't know if you've seen it, the thoughts just keep falling away, collapsing. Because their thoughts are not substantial. They're not as substantial as we think they are, underlined think. Okay? And once you take a look at a thought, a thought is just a thought. Did you know that? That's all it is. It's a thought. But when there's no mindfulness, uh, it's like a dream. You know, we imbue the thought with a certain reality. That is, so the thought actively helps us define what's going on, and then we think that's what's going on. Okay, let's try another way. <laughs> Is the difference between thinking and knowing that you're thinking clear, at least the words? Okay, help me to help you then. What, what's... Yes. Following a thought. It's not thinking about the thought. It's just... Okay. Yes. Mindfulness is just the awareness, and it just shows, okay, if the clock comes in front of it, it shows the clock. If thinking comes in front of it, it shows thinking. If nothing comes in front of it, it shows nothing. If blue sky comes in front of it, it shows blue sky. Mindfulness is uh, preconceptual. There's no thinking at all in mindfulness, none. That's maybe an important thing to know. That's its value. That's why the image of a clear mirror is often used. Its power is that it's preconceptual. It also only happens now. It can only happen in the present moment, mindfulness. And all it is doing is reflecting, like a good mirror does, what is in front of it. What, if you aim it at the body, it's your... For example, could you pinch yourself right now on the hand, really? Did you feel that? Do you feel it? You just did it. It was a, it was a second of mindfulness of the body. I think what happens when thought comes in and I know people are, it's, uh, it's not so easy to be mindful of thinking. And what happens is that we get caught a lot. Thoughts are so captivating and so powerful. And the day comes when the mindfulness, the mind becomes very quiet. And it's not so much that you're trying to catch thoughts with a, but, a butterfly net, but that you're, the mind is quiet and like the thoughts float through, the, float through and get heard. You just hear them. It's not like you're trying to. But that's different than thinking. When you're thinking, to some degree you're aware of what you're doing. There's some uh, consciousness in many of our actions. But in mindfulness of thinking, uh, you're not actively engaged. You're not identified with the thinking process at all. The same with everything else, with the body. Is a little bit? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Do you have to fill out your income tax soon? Do you have to fill out your income tax soon? Just do income tax, mind. You know, that's, think, really think. Uh, many of us have jobs. Where we ha look, I have to think. 
there's a time to use think, thought. <laughs> there is. And there's a, the, the problem isn't thought. Thought is uh, an extraordinary, uh, magnificent, beautiful thing. It's created the center. It's created, you know, how could we have accomplished anything here this week without language, communication, thought, books, all that? It's extraordinary. The problem is we're enslaved to it so that we get caught in the thought and so that thinking is doing us and so much of our suffering comes about because we're attached to thinking rather than it's a very, a, a, a very precious human function to be able to use thought clearly, intelligently, logically, and so forth. So it's knowing when you need it. More and more, look for example, the mind does a lot of compulsive thinking. You must know that if you've been here for these days. Then when I get home on Monday, I'm going to tell that person, I'm not going to put up with all that. Who do they think they are? And then when I get home on Monday, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell that person off. He told me, and then she said, and then when we both met, they didn't. And then he told over and over and over and over. Okay, okay. Uh, do you think that's a useful thing for a human being? <laughs> okay, so if you watch your mind, listen to how thought is being used. Uh, an enormous amount of it is you're talking to yourself and you're convincing yourself you're okay, you're not okay, you are okay, you're, not, you're rehearsing for it. It's a tremendous self-obsession, just nothing personal, you know, maybe it's just me, you know. <laughs> but what I found is I was, am tremendously obsessed with myself. Maybe you're free of that, great. Okay, so there's a lot of thinking going on that's exhausting, repetitive, it's not creative, it's not constructive, and it's, in, in the extreme, it's, deluded, it's delusion, because it's so, the mind can make up stories about anything it wants, and then we believe in it. And sometimes those stories are pretty far away from what's actually happening, okay? And then there's a time to use thought. Um, you know, I don't know what you, what is your job? How do you think I got here? Don't you think I had to plan it out? You think I just parachuted in here? <laughs> okay, in other words, when it's time to plan, just plan. See, in other words, yes. That's exactly, exactly. So that let's say, uh, you see, there's only now. Have you seen, it's really a fact. Even now it doesn't exist because where is it? There's only now, it's gone. Okay, there's no, in that sense, there's no past, no future, it's not even a present. It's quite mysterious, but here we are. Okay. Uh, so uh, sometimes people will, oh yeah, there was a fellow in Cambridge at the end of a, we have these 10 week introductions to the practice sometimes, and he obviously loved the practice, and then at the end of the 10 weeks, we had a go around. And he was so sad. And I said, well, you know, what's the problem? You know, and he said, like, well, I love this practice, but I don't know if I can keep doing it. I said, why? And he said, see, my job is I'm a city planner, you know, and I have to keep planning. And he, <laughs> he thought that, you know, because we were saying, don't get caught up in the future, don't get lost in the past. When the time comes to plan, the planning is happening in the present moment. That's the only moment it can happen in. What we're talking is about when we're lost, we're not awake, and the mind is caught up in the, something way out there, and, and we don't, in the meantime, what's actually happening passes us right by. But if your job requires some planning, mine does, Michael's does, we, had a, we talk and plan, and we, we, we met for next year to plan out other retreats and so forth, then you do that wholeheartedly. See, that's where you're undivided, 100%. Then you exhale whatever what was before it. If it was sitting, forget about sitting. And inhale planning. So you fully do planning, and you ought to be able to do it better. If it's income tax, of course you have to think. Add up the figures correctly. Or at least in your favor, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Please. Sure. No, we're not trying not to think. 
right? <laughs> you, you, you know, we, we hit people when they talk that way. <laughs> Do you apologize? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You notice what? Yes. It's I would say that for me is an extraordinary and beautiful mystery. The best I can do is uh, uh, call it organic intelligence. There's an intelligence that is, in a sense, um, deeper than, or let's just say it's different than intellect. Whereas we all have a capacity for, let's say, rational thought and so forth, and that's a very beautiful accomplishment of the human race, let's say. And you can accumulate knowledge that way, and you know, all the academic subjects and so forth. There's another kind of knowing. When that part of the, of the brain is quiet, goes into abeyance, that uh, is it's really very, very deep and profound. And the seeing knows something. It is not intellectual knowing. It's intuitive. It's direct. Now, what I hear is that you, your intellect is frustrated and it wants a good intellectual understanding about this non-intellectual way of knowing so that it then can feel uh, reassured and okay. And I wish I could do better, but I'm, I'm, this is the best I can do. But it's going to be a slower trip for you if, if you have to satisfy the intellect every step along the way. It's going to be a, you know, a slow ride, bumpy ride. Uh, because, you know, for example, many problems in this practice fall away when you look closely at them. You dis when awareness gets strong, you dissolve them. You don't even solve the problem, but it's not there anymore. And then people will want a, uh, an intellectual explanation, but why am I not mean anymore? I mean, I don't understand what has happened. Uh, or they have a need to write a short story about it, a poem about it, publish a journal article about it, like desperately holding on to the world of thought and explanation and look, it's gone. You're not a mean person anymore. Move on. Okay, if you can't, all right, it's just a local train. You know, I'm a, you know, the express train is just when you don't need it. But there is a, but finally, it is mysterious to me too. But there's a kind of, and it's a, it's a kind of knowing that's extremely helpful. You just know. Uh, it's called, the uh, Tibetans call it um, the cognizing power of emptiness. When the mind becomes empty, means, you know, really, and the, that emptiness is unlimited. It's how vast and silent the mind can become. It has cognizing power. There the image of empty space breaks down, because empty space is not intelligent, it's just space. Uh, but if you reflect on it for a moment, the cognizing power of emptiness, that means when the mind gets that silent, uh, look, uh, one way in which enlightenment is talked about, some of you wanted to know more about that, uh, is called the great silence. Okay, now, many people will hear that, the great silence, big deal, is that what I've been sitting here for nine days just... I want something, you know, a Steven Spielberg special effects, you know, which is sort of, I don't know what, lights going off and just, it's very quiet. Um, I wouldn't worry about that. When, when you start to taste the silent mind, uh, you won't have any questions anymore. It's just a word, silent, like we don't have words for it. And the Buddha didn't talk much about what enlightenment was because it's um, beyond reason. It's not irrational. But it's beyond reason, and by definition, how can you talk? You know, you have to use words. So you can often say what it isn't. It's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment to them. But uh, so, but that's the best I can do. But you found that you did know some things, but then you didn't know how you knew them. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of books on Buddhism. They could probably do a better job than on and why it, why that happened. But I'm just limited there. Yeah. Conflict. What kind of conflict? Internal? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, there's a number of different things mixed in there. I mean, we better slow down because it's getting more complicated the more you speak. No, 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 please. <laughs> I just can't handle so much. Okay, let's start out with listening. Okay. Uh, one of the main ways you learn how to listen, perhaps it's the main way, is that you start to hear how you're not listening. Rather than kind of, let's say I want to listen to you. Uh, it's not so much I strain like that, you know, with my veins popping out. As you're talking, I'm really... It's more I'm just myself, and then as you're talking, but more and more it's a, it's a much more delicate kind of process where I notice that while you're talking I hear two or three sentences and then suddenly my mind is rehearsing what it's going to say, you know. Uh, and then it comes back and then suddenly I don't like what you're saying, you know, and then suddenly it's like, oh, that's a bunch of... You know, uh, or whatever. So that, but little by little, as you listen to when you're not listening, it start. You come to a, a much to, to you come to listening by seeing that you're not listening. Uh, okay, so that part. You get, if you do it, you get clear enough. Now, but now what you're saying is something else. It's more about uh, expressing yourself more, and you use the word conflict. Oh, I think I, I would, uh, my own experience, because, uh, you know, like Michael and I, we have to do a lot of listening, like in interviews and stuff, but in life, everyone does. Um, I would say that art is, has infinite refinement to it. I feel I'm just beginning to learn how to listen to another person. It's a, it, it has a, because the nuances of, it's not just only hearing what they're saying, you're hearing what they're not saying, the tone of the voice. The, uh, so I, I, I don't think it's so, I think it's a, quite a challenge to listen. It's just been my experience. But, okay, I'm sorry, I'm doing... The, 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 let's try again. I didn't... Well, okay. Uh, life is very powerful, and we don't always have the luxury of, let's say we're having a discussion, you say, oh, time out, give me five minutes to work with my reactions, your boss is uh, nervously waiting for you. Okay, no, I have, let me put it this way. Um, but the way, in fact, it happens is we have to do the best we can. Uh, part of why retreats are so wonderful is we attempt to set up ideal conditions. Even here, it's not ideal, but it's as close as we can get. The conditions have been set up to really help us get to know ourselves, to quiet down, to really take each thing, to each bite carefully as we eat and so forth. Okay, but once you get into life, sometimes you can do it and sometimes not. Maybe this will help you. Uh, the difference between a reaction and a response. Okay. And in terms of conflict, that was the first word you used. Uh, the reaction is what we're already doing. We don't need training on how to do that. Uh, and that's a normal thing. There's nothing oh, strange about it. Uh, the mind is just reacting. You know, let's say you say something to me. I can't help my... If you prick me with a pin, I bleed. It's just lawful. Okay. You say something to me that's not, not very flattering. Then I, my, my body stiffens up and I don't like it. Yeah, I, that's the way it happens. Okay. And then what comes out of that is d defensive, aggressive, and then, okay, that's a, that's a reaction, okay. As you practice more and more, you become sensitive to your reactions. And they, it's not, your phrase was, if I remember it, uh, become aware of it and then let it go. That sounds like pushing it away, you know. I would say just be aware of it. Because if you're aware of it, you take, you take a lot or eventually all the potency out of it. It's not danger, it's benign. Do you know? But anyway, let's say what happens is, is something like this, and then we're going to bring it into real life in a moment. You and I are talking, and I feel a strong reaction. Uh, and so you get much better at being aware of the reaction. Sometimes all it needs is a second or two, you know. And the reaction subsides a little bit, and then there's a bit of space, and that's the breath can be very helpful there. Like with right speech, 
you, you know that, you know, where uh, speech should not be, it should be true, it should not be harsh, uh, it shouldn't be idle, you know, kind of nonsense, and it shouldn't be divisive, you know, setting people off against each other, okay? So sometimes all that, uh, that stands between you and wrong speech is one or two breaths. You know, you're just about to, and you're like hanging on to a breath for dear life, and you, but you don't say it, you know. And then you have another chance to phrase it in a way that is not going to be an assault on the person. Okay, it's the same here. If you can be, become increasingly aware of your reactions, it creates a space in the mind, and sometimes you don't need much time, a second or two, and then it's, what's possible is a more adequate response. You see, the response is different. Okay, now, now let's put it all in real life. Okay. You and I are, again, we're talking to each other. Maybe it's in the context of, of a job, and maybe there's a deadline, and people are screaming, and phones are going off. Oh, you know. We, okay. Um, the way in which, in daily life, uh, the, the mindfulness practice seems to uh, happen, or it can happen with some help. You have to practice, otherwise you won't learn how to do it. It's a bit like the tides going in and out. So let's say sometimes... Uh, I'm predominantly with you, let's say, while you're talking, a, a little bit in touch with myself. Then maybe then for a split second, I'm much more with myself. I'm still in touch with you, you know, but I, and I, haven't lo I haven't lost touch with you, but I'm predominantly a lot more inside. And then suddenly, I'm, you see, and sometimes they feel rather balanced. It, it will vary from moment to moment. If time is a factor and we have to act, uh, then we have to, all we can do is the best we can. We can't uh, insist that the world stop being the world, so that we can uh, go into full lotus and follow our breath and two hours later say the right thing. Okay. But that's part of why we practice at home and on retreats, is as we clear the mind out of a lot of the debris, the destructive content in the mind, and as we begin to see what is destructive and what isn't, uh, you actually become more uh, compassionate to people, more patient, more tolerant, even if you don't take it on as a special training it starts to happen. And as the mind becomes more spacious and quiet, and that just comes from practice, now let's say you're the same boss, let's say, and you're mean to me. Okay. Let's say I never did a retreat at IMS, and you're mean to me, and I, I'm living in a tiny little space. I never meditated. When you hit me with your mean stuff, it goes boom, and you know, it's uh, explosive. It's friction. You know. uh, but now you've meditated, you know, I've done a nice nine-day retreat, and the mind is a much bigger place, and it's quieter. So now you, again, insult me, and it hits it, but now it's, uh, it's not experienced in quite a devastating way, because you're living in a bigger place. The ancients used an image that might help you. Uh, if you have a glass of water, and you put, uh, a, let's say, uh, a half a glass of salt in the water, you can't drink it. But if you have like a vat of water the size of this room and you put the salt in it, you won't even notice it. You can drink it. So as the mind becomes more spacious and calm, it's much more able to experience the uh, stressors in the modern language, the assaults the, that come at us, and not necessarily being so overwhelmed by it because there's a fulfillment that you're living in that's intrinsic. That's, that's what the silence is. Does that make some sense? Okay. Yeah, that's the key one. If you can remember that, it'll be very helpful. Please. Okay, I mean, what you're giving me, uh, you know, it's, we humans do that a lot. Okay, but uh, this, okay, let's see if we can unravel that a little bit. Um, because it sounds like this is, uh, you have someone in mind or other, right, <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, it's happened more than once, right? So there's a buildup 
And so you're now, there's an accumulation of resentment and frustration and things of that sort. Okay, so now you have this practice. You have that backlog and Monday comes and there you go again, the two of you. Um, but what you're going to uh, begin to do is you can now begin to intervene in a way by using the practice uh, to begin to, first of all, work with the resentment, the annoyance, the frustration. Some of that will come up when the person isn't even there. You know? And so as you start to... Uh, now, the, uh, like with conflict, which was your original question, people want to be harmonious. You know, we all, it sounds like a good word, and it, when we are, it feels... But from this practice, one of the main ways you get to harmony is by becoming really aware of disharmony. It's, it's sometimes called a via negativa, the negative way. In other words, you get to the good stuff by letting go of the bad stuff, not by trying to do an impersonation of being a harmonious person. I'm a very harmonious person. You see that you're not. And so if you want to be nonviolent, you have to get to know the violence in you. Those of you who know the anti-war movement, you know, and during Vietnam, you had these people pounding tables, just the term, anti-war. We, had, we were at war with war. And it was, uh, it was, uh, it was not uh, so high. And it also limited our effectiveness. Okay, so you start with yourself always. And what's built up is that you have this frustration, etc. Maybe that gets a little bit weaker. Now, I can't, we're not here to program you, you know. So let's say the day comes where this person, you and you're speaking and you feel it again. As you get better at being with it as it happens and also as your samadhi gets stronger, uh, then that starts to lose some of its potency. And then you have other options. One of the options might be, see, if you're in touch with what's happening, you actually can be more skillful in terms of a response. Just as if you're in touch with what's happening, you know this room is burning down and you're the first one out of here. Okay. So here, you feel that starting to happen. Sometimes you pick it up earlier in the conversation. Just the very bare beginning of the, oh, here it comes, the resentment. You know, she's doing it again, or whatever it is. And now, there's no formula for it, but as you become more able to uh, be equanimous with it, observe it in, a, in an even-minded way, you might uh, then speak to her and say, you know, I'm feeling very frustrated right now, but if, if you're speaking to her from a place where you're not upset because you've been dealing with it inside, then you have a chance for a dialogue. If you're just sort of, I'm feeling very upset with the way you're talking to me, what do you think that person's going to do? Yeah, so then it goes back. So it always, if you take care of yourself, then I don't know what you should do, but you may find some way of um, speaking to her in a new way, break some new ground. If, it, if you start to see how much it's bothering you uh, and that starts to fall away, you may have a response that changes things and then enables this other person to be different too. In other words, you break out of this mechanical reaction, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. Uh, I just want to, this last thing, we've used the phrase living wisdom. Uh, of course, this is, we've been in the lab here and now it's time to uh, put it to a test. Living wisdom, uh, our life is a test. That is, can we um, manifest Buddha nature while taking three screaming kids to school? Can we manifest Buddha nature while listening to a boss who uh, makes no sense? Can we manifest, you know, so, so the challenges of practice, instead of seeing life as this horrible place out there, that somehow uh, all these non-meditators who just keep screwing up my life, you know, uh, they're not vegetarian, they're not meditators, they're, uh, they're not going to go away. I've been at this longer than you have. They keep being there. Okay. They don't want to meditate. They like steak. They like it. They're not interested in this tofu and all the rest. Okay. And they have lots of strong views and opinions, and there are many, many more of them than there are of us. Overwhelming. We've lost the battle already, just to understand. Okay. But what you can do is, if you change inside, that's why it's sometimes called a quiet revolution. It's a bloodless one, if you do it right. It has nothing to do with hurting, insulting. It's not, it has to do with you change in how you relate to what's happening. You change in how you relate to what's happening. And if, if this practice is valuable, and it is helping you to see more clearly and to understand a lot more clearly, then we, at some point you have to demonstrate it. You have to pre and you demonstrate it from how you actually live. Actually, I'll leave you with this. My first teacher was 
a man from India named Krishnamurti. And when I first met him, we spent uh, some time together over a period of a week. And over and over, he used the phrase, uh, start to see how you actually live. And at first it sounded, yeah, okay. But at a certain point, the actually is what became so, like neon lights. Uh, because we all have notions about how we live. And when you start to pay attention from moment to moment, you see how you actually live. Do you know what I mean by actually? Okay, a lot of images get shattered, they fall away. And uh, the real wisdom comes out of that. I think we have to... We can continue talking to each other, but now, in a new form, can we all just... Uh, in a, in one, one aspect of the retreat's over. <laughs> I get it. When you talk here, sound goes out. <laughs> I'm no dummy. <laughs> okay. um, if we could all kind of don't worry about this precious sacred formation that you've been living in for nine days now it's over This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 16, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.